Relatively Prime has come into existence thanks to the 159 people who are kind enough to give me their money through Kickstarter. I would like to thank all of them, but in particular, today I would like to thank Laura Egan and Cooper Willis, as well as my Kickstarter producers, Douglas Dollar Stewart, Colin Wright, Edmund Harris, Martin Dominic, Cody Palmer, Jay Frosting, and Daniel Greenspun. Thank you all for letting me make my vision of a mathematical podcast into a reality. It hardly seems that a week can go by without seeing another newspaper story or television report about the decline of the American educational establishment, particularly with respect to mathematics. As a product of said establishment, I can't say that I think it's as bad as the doomsayers would have us all think. But that's not to say that I think everything is peachy keen either. There are problems. Ranking 25th, out of 34 countries. On the mathematical section of the OECD's International Student Assessment Test, a score that they refer to as being statistically significantly below the average makes that clear, as does the general populace's ill will towards the subject. The problems are not insurmountable, though. In fact, I may have spoken to some of the people who will help solve them. I am Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Relatively Prime, stories from the mathematical domain. On today's show... I will speak with people trying to improve mathematical education at different orders of magnitude. There's the teacher trying to make the classroom a more effective place to learn, the organization trying to change the lots of mathematical teachers, and the man who's using what he learned from playing World of Warcraft to change the way that people will learn mathematics in the near future. Let's start with the teacher. Okay, there we go. Um, So if we could just start out uh, with you giving me name affiliations. Yeah, my name is Dan Meyer. I'm currently a grad student at Stanford School of Education. I get a doctorate in math education. Prior to this, I was a math teacher for about six years. I've also worked at Google for a year. Yeah, as I was looking, I was looking through you. You have a for someone who was a math teacher, you have a, a very uh, interesting list of uh, list of things on your CV. There's always a lot of fun things to do in the Silicon Valley surrounding education and math and technology. You originally came to my attention, and I imagine a lot of other people who are not part of the the math teacher community due to your big TEDx talk. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how that kind of came together. Sure, sure. Yeah, the organizer, a guy named David Bill, I hadn't heard of until he emailed me, inviting me out there to give a little talk at TEDx. And that all came about on account of a blog I maintain that I started in my third or fourth year teaching, just kind of sharing strategies, trials, tribulations, triumphs, that sort of thing, about teaching math. And so that blog had a little bit of steam at the point that I got invited that's how they found me, and I've continued that since then. So I mean, that's that's kind of the thing. You have surprisingly large net presence for a teacher. Uh, maybe maybe it's not surprising anymore, but I I did not 
realize that, they're, that, that math teachers would, would have blogs outside of the kind of classroom blog for your students. So what made you decide that uh, the internet was, was going to be a place that you spent a lot of your time? I mean, it's just a, a work in progress. At first, it was just a way of, of posting things that interested me that I had in a personal private blog that were just going nowhere, seen, seen by nobody. I thought I'd just make them public. And pretty soon, I benefited from a lot of criticism and occasional compliments from other readers. And I found myself getting so much better as a teacher on account of the criticism I got. I would post a lesson plan, I would post some curriculum, and just receive you know, a whole lot of mixed reviews. And that got me through a lot of lousy patches as a teacher. It got me past some obsessions that weren't productive as a teacher. So I just kept that up and really engaged my readership as much as possible in a number of different ways, and that's where I'm at right now. Before, before you found this community on the internet, did you have a strong community just surrounding you of local teachers at all, or was that one not quite as, as close-knit as you found the internet one to be? Yeah, it's a good question. I taught at a campus with six other math teachers, six total, and they were all more veteran than I was. They are older by a decade at least, and they're really great, but they were interested in different things. They had already pushed past the challenges that I was currently dealing with, classroom management, let's say. They were interested in different kind of curricula than I was. So as good as they were, yeah, I felt a certain amount of professional isolation and uh, found the solution for that online. Let's, let's start talking about teaching math now. So from the TED video, I wanted you to hopefully explain a couple of things for, for me and my listeners. You talk about there being two different types of, of math, especially dealing with math teaching, that's uh, a mathematical computation and, and application. Could you kind of explain maybe what you mean by the difference for the two? Yeah, those are two very rough categorizations for an 11-minute talk. Factoring polynomials would be an example of, of computational math or, or just calculating sums and figures. Uh, naked numbers, I call them sometimes, no units attached. Whereas application problems, real-world math, quote-unquote, word problems, they, they try to take those computational uh, mathematics and apply them to some problem that exists outside the classroom. Now, you've become known for that application side or for your kind of approach to the application side. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about perhaps where you came up with the idea, because you, you tend to take things where word problems were previously, it was kind of clear what sort of formula it was essentially trying to force you into. And, and you're taking away a lot of levels and starting from a, a kind of a simpler, but also uh, a place where you have to think a little bit more. Yeah, the simplicity you call out, I think that's, that's an important piece of this. It's simpler in one way and more complicated and more rigorous in another. I, I, I use math myself regularly, not all the time, not every day. But I've used math to do some things that have been very profitable and interesting in my life. And I noticed the difference between how those experiences play out for me as a civilian, as a person, um, and how we present those applications to our students. And one of those is that we present those scenarios with a lot of text. And the thing you're supposed to do is at the end of that paragraph, let's say, or at the end of steps A, B, C, and D, Whereas when I do applied math in my life, I start with some compelling question, a hook. How many boards should I buy for my deck? Or how do I get the money I need to make my budget you know, next month? And then I start looking for the tools and information I'll need. And that, that's inverted in word problems in textbooks for no other reason except that that's, the, that's how it's been done on paper for a long time. 
So could you, I mean, you mentioned a couple of, of basic starting points. So if I was a math teacher, I was, I was wanting to use kind of your method for doing word point, could you give me an example of one I could say start with? Sure. There is a pyramid of pennies. This guy, he, he spent a long time making this pyramid of stacks of pennies. This is, just describing it in words is so inadequate. And we're watching this time-lapse video of this thing being built over who knows how long. And it's just enormous and impressive, and it must have taken a long time to, to create. And the question is almost unavoidable, but I'll ask it anyway, is, is how many pennies are there in that stack? Or how long did it take? Either way, those are compelling questions. They compel people. I've polled people and asked them, what do you want to know here? And at that point, when we have this visual and this compelling question, that's when I ask them, what information are you going to need to figure this out? And they decide, well, I'll need to know how many stacks are on the base of this pyramid, and how many pennies are in each stack, and how high does it go, and all these different things that your textbook just kind of spells out for you. It does that thinking for the student. So essentially what you're, what, if, if I'm getting this correctly, what you're trying to do is you're trying to actually make the students think? It seem, that seems like a rather revolutionary idea in, in education these days. Well, we, all, we, we all want students to think. It's what we're thinking about here. In, in, yeah. in the case of the textbook, they're thinking about what algorithm, what formula do I use to apply here? They're flipping back a couple pages in the textbook to find that out and then apply it. I'd like students to think more often about the question, what information do I need here? Which is a question that you and I are thinking about all the time when we're solving logistical problems, but doesn't get any play in textbooks. When you have students talking in class and asking questions, what are, what are the kind of things you want them to be talking about then? Like, what are, you, what are you looking for in the classroom conversations? I mean, I, I definitely want them talking about what algorithms and what mathematical tools they can bring to bear on the problem. I want them talking about precision and all the same things textbooks want, but I also want them talking about other things. I want them estimating. I want them estimating how many pennies are in that stack. Do they think it's five billion, five million? What's their spatial sense there? I want them thinking about uh, what information is necessary. I want them talking about that, what they need. Um, and then at the end of that, talking about whether or not their answer it make, makes reasonable sense based on their estimates from before that. The textbook has this very narrow slice of conversation. What, what is the algorithm? How do I apply it? I want that plus extra stuff. And I get that when I start with um, some evocative multimedia and a concise, clear question. The thing that, that kind of comes into my head from that, especially with the idea of estimation, is are you in some ways kind of teaching students that it's okay to be wrong, too? I mean, especially with an estimate. I mean, an estimate in general is, is not precisely correct, but most students will go into a math class thinking, oh, this is the class where I get everything exactly right. So are you in, in some ways kind of teaching them that it's okay to be at least a little bit wrong sometimes? That, that's, a, that's a really good question, and I, I think I, I would say to start with, like, I, I want students to say to themselves before they start any work, what does a wrong answer look like? That way, when they, they get an answer, they, they can evaluate, is this, is this right or not? More to your point, like I, I, it's interesting that in the textbook, you apply the algorithm to the applied problem, and the answer always, 100% of the time, either matches the answer in the back of the book exactly, or it doesn't. Like You're either right or wrong. But you and I know that when you apply math, you want to be 95% confident, would be awesome, would be ideal, oh, yeah. great, great for government work. Um, but we're never exactly right. Uh, who was it? George Box said uh, all models are, are broken, but some are useful. Um, and we're giving students the opposite impression with our, how we treat it in textbooks. There's a series of words, a couple of things now are just going to be me asking you what specific statements you have said before on the internet mean. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I, I think that these are ones that you might be uh, pretty well versed in. Right. What is impatient problem solving? Uh, you know what, when you see it, uh, you give a student two numbers in a problem and they tend to do the easiest thing 
that they, they know to do with them or the most recent thing that they ever did with them. So they might add them, multiply them, average them, whatever's easiest or most recent. You know, they, they gave fourth graders a problem. I'm sure I'll mess up. It's called the ship captain's problem, but it basically gave students two irrelevant pieces of information, uh, the number of sheep on the, on the boat and the number of goats on the boat. And the question was, how old is the captain? And, and it's just, it was just tragic how many students came up with an answer to how old is the captain by doing, you know, adding, multiplying, doing something until they got an answer they didn't hate. And as I recall, the study found that the more formal schooling that you had, the more likely you were to offer an answer to that question. So these are all, I'm, I'm kind of like circling the issue of what is impatient problem solving. Let's just slow down for a second. Think about what a wrong answer would look like. Think about what information will be necessary here. The other, the other one, and this is one that I've, I've noticed from you, I believe, both on your Twitter account and your blog. What do you mean by uh, you don't have to be the answer key? Yeah, yeah, you don't have to be the answer key. We tell students, we make a really big audacious claim to students, and that is that math models your world, that you have questions, math has answers. And that's, like, for guys like you and me who have studied math at a higher ed level, we're sold out, we, we drank the Kool-Aid, bought the product a long time ago, that's not a controversial statement. But for students, they don't like math in some cases, and they don't necessarily believe that it works. So we say, all right, try this problem, this math problem, this applied problem in the textbook. They get an answer, and then uh, to confirm the power of math, we tell them in the back of the book that their answer is correct. And there's just like a clear co conflict of interest. So what I'm saying is if we have this pyramid of pennies I described earlier, like the, the number of pennies in that stack, they get that through mathematics, rather than showing them the answer in the back of the book and the answer key, or saying, guys, trust me, like I wouldn't lie to you guys, you have the right answer, math works. Go to the website of the guy who made the pyramid of pennies and see that their answer matches his. And then we have the sense that, oh, wow, this is actually a pretty powerful tool, this mathematics. Do you find that you get a lot more engagement by actually introducing these clear, real-world things that they could see every day? The real engagement happens when they've done all this work, and then they see the answer. And there's, this, this, there's a bit of suspense, and I posted a clip of this on my blog of someone in real time l watching the answer play out. And she, she goes through this mix as she watches the water tank fill up of suspense, am I right, how close was I, to disappointment when she thinks that she's wrong, that it's going too slow, and then elation and, and happiness when it, eventually she's like within, you know, 2% error. That's the kind of engagement that I, I love to see where students like think, okay, wow, this math thing is actually useful for something outside the classroom. It describes my world. So say I had something not too dissimilar from the MacArthur Genius Grant. I was just able to be, you know, dropping large amounts of money, and I gave you a, a math department at a, you know, new school that was starting up and said, hey, Dad, you get to design the, you know, curriculum in the, in the style of, of pedagogy for this school. Uh, what, what would your dream run math program be? It's a huge question. I'm sure I'll, I'll regret my answer, you know, <laughs> seconds after giving it. But I, 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 this is the point where I would say, like, look, I'm just talking about applied math here. So this, this has been prescriptions for applied mathematics, and that's not the only math worth talking about. But so I would say that for when, when we're going to use an application problem, when we're going to make this claim that math models your world, we do it in this particular style I've described that proves that, that involves students in the process of how people actually apply math. For the other stuff, for computation, for factoring polynomials and trinomials, we gotta have students doing a lot. We gotta present our lectures and explanations in the context of a question that reveals the need for it. 
And too often, it's, that's lost. Too often, we say, today, class, we're going to talk about parabolas or, or quadratics, and we go into lecture about it. And students don't have this, this cohesive sense that math is something of a story, and there's conflict and obstacles and antagonists. And you know, our protagonist, X, goes through all kinds of transformations, and we pick up all kinds of skills uh, to help X throughout his journey. Would you, would you have a, uh, a piece of advice for someone who's uh, either starting or is deciding now that they might want to do math education or who's just starting to go out and get their first job? Yeah, I mean, definitely, this is, this is not particularly practical, but I'm going to say it anyway, and that's to pay attention to what you love about math. For me, that was applied math, and it's power. That was a big part of it. And, uh, you know, as you, as you are now wedged into this structure called public education in a certain state with certain standards in a school with a certain bell schedule, it's so easy to lose track of how much you, what you love right now at this second as a math graduate, let's say. Keep that as your compass, as your compass needle, as your true north. And if you are forced to do things in your classroom that, that you know, violate how much you enjoy math, be very reticent with that. And as you, as you do things you love mathematically, capture those. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's a particular problem that you solved on the weekend that's accessible to a student you teach, you know, capture that and pose it to them and involve them in that process. Uh, carry a camera with you. Your phone has a camera maybe. So if you find yourself on a subway platform and you notice some math on a poster that's wrong or correct, snap a shot of that and bring that into the classroom. Dan Meyer is clearly a good teacher. He has a unique approach and dedication, and if we could just clone him a few hundred thousand times, I'm sure that we could solve all of the problems in mathematical education today. Sadly, that's simply not possible. I mean, at least as far as we know, it's not. Hmm. Never, never mind, never mind. Uh, until such a day occurs that we can just clone Dan, I guess we'll just have to find more teachers like him. That may end up being harder than expected, though. There's this incredible statistic that after five years, half the teachers are gone. It's, uh, people will argue sometimes that, oh, it's not, it's not half, it's only 40%. But frankly, even if it's only 40%, this is an amazing fact that you spend all this time training somebody to be a great teacher and then losing roughly half of them. And there's some indication, especially in math, math and science, that the best teachers tend to leave. Now, that's not too surprising, right? The best teachers are often the ones that could find other jobs, or, or frankly, the best teachers just get ground down by the system the way it is right now. And we have the system where we're bringing people into teaching. After roughly five years, half of them, half of them drop out, preferentially the best drop out, and the system evolves to just sort of keep, keep the process churning. Not only do students then almost always have inexperienced teachers, but the whole body of teachers becomes less and less good instead of better and better. So you've got to change that. You've got to find a way 
to convince people that staying in teaching is is a good thing, that teaching is a great profession, and that the best people can find it really rewarding. But somehow in this country, we've managed to make teaching at high school and middle school into a really grinding, very unpleasant profession. And of course, all they have to do is to open a newspaper and read about all the terrible teachers out there to make it even worse. So we're really discouraging the best people right now from becoming teachers. And the more, the more we wring our hands and the more we focus on the weak teachers, on the bad teachers, the more that's true, the worse we're going to make it. That was John Ewing. He is the president of the nonprofit Math for America, a group that since 2004 have made it their mission to improve mathematical education. They plan on doing this through a rather radical technique. They are going to focus on teachers. The premise of Math for America is that one can best fix education in this country and make it better by focusing on teachers and trying to get really good teachers in the classroom and support them. I'm saying that carefully because Math for America began the way many teacher programs began in this country, by focusing on bringing people into teaching of mathematics. And I think one of the premises of Math for America was that there aren't enough teachers who, who really know deeply their, the subject that they teach. And tied with that is that they don't really, they don't, a lot of them don't like the subject. Teaching mathematics, this sounds weird, but they're teaching mathematics, but in fact they don't actually like mathematics, and they just somehow ended up teaching mathematics. So Math for America began in 2004 by trying to, to recruit people that knew mathematics, that loved the subject, that had a good feeling for it, into the teaching profession. And we still do that. But over the last seven years, I think Math for America has discovered that, surprisingly, while there certainly are some weak teachers out there, there are a lot of very strong teachers out there. And so Math for America now has slightly shifted focus. In addition to bringing people into teaching, our aim is to try to find and then support and recognize and reward and do all of those things to really good teachers that are already out there in the classroom and then use those as models to improve the, the teaching profession. I think in the past, people have focused on worrying about the weakest teachers that are out there. And there are some weak teachers out there, and we recognize that, otherwise we wouldn't exist. But Math for America tries to turn all of that around, and instead, we focus on the best teachers. Instead of worrying about getting rid of the bottom 10%, worry about supporting the top 10%. And make sure that they stay there. And if you reward the top 10%, then the next 10%, and the 10% after that, and the 10% after that, see that by working hard and doing what great teachers do, that they too can, can be rewarded. So it kind of elevates the whole profession when you do that. And that's the aim of Math for America, is to elevate the profession. Math for America's mission is centered around four key beliefs. The first one being that knowing mathematics is important, inspiring students is the goal.
We feel it's essential that anybody that's going to be teaching mathematics knows the subject well enough so that they can communicate to students the beauty of it, the fact that it's that it has power, that it's useful. You actually have to actually really understand mathematics pretty well in order to be able to answer the, the question that everybody that teaches mathematics is asked all the time. What good is this? It's almost impossible to be a creative teacher of mathematics without knowing the subject deeply. So that's, that's the inspiration part. Math for America's second belief is that while mentoring is important, it's making teachers professionals that is the goal. One of the biggest problems we face in this country is that teaching is not a respected profession. Now, of course, that's a generalization, and there's some people that do respect teaching. But by and large, more and more people find teaching is not a profession that they would recommend other people go into. I often talk, I mean, I used to be a university professor for many years, and I talked to lots of my friends who were still in university, and I asked them, Suppose that one of your math majors, your best math major, came to you and said, you know, I'm thinking about becoming a high school teacher. What would you say to that person? And almost without exception, they say, I, I discourage them. I tell them, you can do better than that. Now, that's a terrible thing. Think of what that's doing to, to, our, to our nation. We've got to change that. We've got to make teaching into a, a profession that people really want to do. One of the ways of doing that is to make sure that the best teachers we have become the mentors of the next generation. This is just self-replicating. You get the best teachers, get them training the next generation of teachers, and pretty soon people will see that there are really great teachers. The, the next generation of teachers will begin to believe it, that you can become a great teacher. Math for America also openly admits that they know just how important money is. But they're really trying to hit the goal of prestige. Whenever anybody says to me, oh, money's not, a, not important here, I always, you know, <laughs> take it with a grain of salt at the very least. I sort of know that, aha, money really is important here, but they don't want to admit it. So money's important, but, but prestige is the key. That's the key to changing the profession of teaching. Finally, Math for America knows that recruitment is important, but that their goal is retention. There's the simple fact that study after study after study shows that experience counts in teaching. That when, when you're a beginning teacher, I don't care how well trained you are, for the first couple years you're learning the craft of teaching. And some people are, are more natural at it than others, that's true. But everybody becomes a much better teacher after a few years. Everybody does. And that's the way it is in high school and middle school and elementary school. So we have got to figure out how to keep people in teaching longer if we really want to make improvements. In order to achieve these goals, Math for America has begun four different programs two of which are fellowships for prospective or beginning teachers. They also have the Master Teachers program for those who have already shown the ability to excel, and one for mathematical educators who have made the transition into administration. Now, all of these offer some sort of support, 
be it training, which even includes master's degrees in mathematical education for the prospective teaching candidates, or financial, in the form of personal stipends. The administrators even receive extra money for their school's mathematics programs. The one thing that all share, though, is community, the importance of which really can't be stressed enough. It just it sort of changes the whole profession for people when you've got a couple hundred people around you all of whom are sort of in the same mindset, you know, all, all who love teaching, love the subject, and, and want to be really professional about it. Since community seems to be such an integral part of Math for America, I made sure to ask John Ewing just how they go about fostering it. So how do you kind of go about fostering these communities of teachers? Like, how do you, how do you bring them together? How do you get them talking? That's an interesting question. I think it happens differently for the different groups. So we have, we have one program that has new teaching fellows. We bring them in and we train them. We give them a year-long master's degree. One consequence of the fact that they go through a whole year of training is that they bond with one another. They're in the same classes and they talk to one another and they share experiences with one another. And so that, that creates a cohort, this group that sort of bonds together. We have a similar program for people early in their career. They're already in teaching. They come in again in a cohort. And in, in the beginning, we just sort of were blending them in with everybody else. But we've discovered, actually, if you make sure that for a year they do most of their workshops and professional development together, that, again, is a kind of bonding experience. They, they sort of share experiences with one another. So this is very deliberate on our part, that we try to look for ways in which to connect them. The master teachers, this third program, where they're more experienced teachers, that's a little harder. I guess the best way we can do that is by, we insist that everybody come in at least once a month into the office for something, for a workshop, sometimes social events, sometimes other things. Um, massive amounts of pizza, incredible amounts of pizza, everybody. So pizza is the glue that binds teachers together, I've discovered. And I think they, they, they come in, and it takes longer. I mean, it takes for them, they're, they're already experienced. They're already professionals and are in the classroom. And so, but, I mean, so we have to work a little bit at trying to get them to feel that they're part of this group. The other key is that if you're a really good teacher and you've been teaching for seven, eight, or ten years, one of the best things we can do is to connect you with a young beginning teacher. And pretty soon, we will be using master teachers to be the, you know, the student teacher guides who train young teachers. There's absolutely no better way to make an outstanding, inspiring teacher feel respected and honored than to ask them to train the next generation of teachers. I also had the chance to speak with two of the teachers that are part of Math for America. My name is Meredith Klein. I'm a 2009 Math for America fellow, and I teach at the International High School at Union Square. My name is Patrick Honor. I'm a second-term master teacher with Math for America. Currently a math teacher at Brooklyn Technical High School. And they both had things to say about this community as well. I mean, they've given me this community that I wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, I... I have the professional learning teams, which is a group of teachers that meets monthly to plan and talk about their experiences. Every year there's a new, like a staff member that sort of 
touches base with us and, and I can check in with. I have like this check-in person. I have an advisor that comes to see me monthly in my classroom. Just this this sort of like camaraderie and this membership to this community that I just, I wouldn't have. And the DOE is a huge system. And I talk to teachers that don't have this community and they're sort of doing it by themselves. And I've, they feel sort of, I think, disconnected. It's just this, it's overwhelming. So I feel kind of grounded in a way. And I feel like I'm, you know, I'm getting all this professional development. I'm getting all these opportunities to keep learning and to keep connecting with other people in, in the teaching world. Um, that's been amazing. Every school, of course, has its departments. And, you know, we, we work within our departments and, you know, we work on specific student needs in, in our local departments. We work on curricula issues and, and all kinds of things within the schools. And, you know, just like in any organization, when you're at your school, you kind of find the people that you work the best with and the people that share your interests and goals and you kind of work with them. What Math for America does is it almost institutes like this higher level department, almost. It's a super math department where you're working with all kinds of great teachers who all do innovative, different things, who share those ideas. We get together at professional events or social events. Math for America puts together, you know, sort of social events as well for people to just kind of hang out and, and talk about the things that they naturally want to talk about, which are math and teaching. That network is really powerful because whenever you get together, you get, you know, there are, there are millions of ideas available to you. And all you have to do is have a slice of pizza and, and <laughs> start a conversation. I'm not going to hide that I think that Math for America seems to be a really great program. In fact, I think that it really can and, in fact, is having a positive effect on mathematical education. But I still had to ask if there is any proof. This, so this is the evaluation question. And so th this is really tough because... Um, and I'm not evading the question here, so let me try to explain why I think it's, it's a tough question. First, we could do something really simple, like just look at test scores of all the students that are in Math for America teachers' classes. But that's not a great way to evaluate whether we're being successful for two reasons. One, one is that the ultimate aim of education isn't just to raise test scores, right? And that's kind of a trivial thing. Tests are kind of just a little piece of a much bigger thing. We hope that when, when teachers are great and inspiring, and that they do way more than just raise some test scores. And we want to figure out how to document that fact, that, that inspiring teachers change the way people think about mathematics, and they change the pattern of behavior for people, not just this year and what tests they take, but for their entire career. So we need to find deeper, better ways to measure the effect of, of our teachers. But the other reason is that, you know, for the master teacher program, for example, we pick out the very best teachers. Now, suppose that we show that their students' test scores are higher than other <laughs> teachers. Well, let's see, what have we shown? Well, we've shown that we picked out the very best teachers. This is not a great way to evaluate things, right? I mean, I, what we're trying to prove is that we can change the system by focusing on the best teachers. And, and unfortunately, the only way you're going to show that is by giving it enough time to let it run, to sort of show that the whole quality of the teaching profession and the core of teachers gets better and better over time. 
course, we want to show that it does have an effect, but it's a very complicated process to show that it has an effect. I mean, outside, outside of testing, which I agree is, is just a bad metric, have you seen perhaps higher retention rates amongst your, your fellows sure. uh, after five years than... Yeah, so, so, we, so we already can show that, you know, there was this half of them leave after five years. Well, for us, it's in the 80s. That stay. Yeah, 80s that leave. <laughs> still leave. And and moreover, the, the the ones that leave, we study very carefully. Why are they? Why do they leave teaching? And for most of them, they're personal reasons. You know, somebody got sick or something happened. Almost everybody stays. And even if they drop out of the program, they will stay in teaching. It's accelerated my growth in pretty much every way I could imagine. We hear from principals and assistant principals that they, they want more Math for America teachers. We're, we're getting a good reputation here. I mean, I tell everybody all the time, I'm like, you've got to do this. Like, I'll put in a good word for you. I, I can't imagine, like I said before, I cannot imagine teaching without Math for America. There was a young woman who was teaching at one of the very best schools in the city, I might add, but she'd been teaching for seven years, and she just said she was burned out, you know, See, the bureaucracy was kind of deadening, even though it was one of the best schools. And she, she applied for a job in one of the big financial companies. And the same week that she got that job, got a job offer, she got the offer from Math for America. And she chose Math for America at that point, instead of, take, instead of going into the, to finance. And she said it just changed her life. Well, I'll admit that that's not exactly the rigorous proof that say a research mathematician would be looking for, it is good enough for me. Now, Math for America is not going away anytime soon, even if... So, so the goal of Math for America is to go out of business. That doesn't mean that they're just going to rest on their laurels, though. They have plans, big ones, for the future. The, the goal of Math for America um, is to create a national teacher core that would be both math and science, uh, that would be spread out across the country and be something, would be large. Now, large could mean various things, but one way to define large is about 42,000 teachers. The reason I say 42,000 is that it, that's 100 per congressional district, roughly. So, it's somewhere between 20 and 40,000 teachers. You want to have this core of really great, outstanding teachers who do exactly the same thing that Math for America does. I mean, they would, you know, they would be mentors, they would be cooperating teachers for student teachers, they'd come together, they'd be leaders in various movements. And, and that would profoundly change teaching in this country if you had that kind of core teachers. And that's, that's our goal. That's what we're trying to aim for, is to convince people that we could really revolutionize the profession of teaching by doing in the past, we tried to do that by creating, you know, we created, it started in New York, and then we were creating little programs in other places that are semi-autonomous. They still all do roughly what, what we do. And there are programs in San Diego, in Los Angeles, in Berkeley, in Boston, Washington, D.C., and Utah. And I think that it became clear that for a complicated set of reasons, just adding more and more sites, each of which is small, isn't going to be very convincing to people that this is a program that should be 
you know, brought to scale across the nation. So our idea right now for the future is to stop adding more sites and take New York, which is now about 340 teachers, and make it between 800 and 1,000 teachers. Most of that expansion, almost all of it, will be in the master teacher program. We'll keep the number of fellows about the same. There are about 25 new ones a year. Keep the number of early career people about the same, again, about 25 a year. But with the master teacher program, we're going to really grow to find all the good teachers. And, and this is the key step, I think. We're going to not only have it be math, but be math and science both. So we'll add science to the master teacher program, not to the others. The others require specialized training. But we'll have both math and science in the master teacher core, and we'll have a big group. About 1,000 teachers is about 10% of the math and science teachers in the city. And at that point, New York City schools, I mean, math and science part of New York City schools will be pretty different. I will add one more thing here. For, for a number of years now, we've focused on trying, whenever we talk about problems with teachers, teacher shortages, we always focus on bringing new people into teaching. But when a report came out last year from the President's Council of Academic Advisors on Science and Technology, they, they had two recommendations, one of which was bring in, over the next 10 years, bring in 100,000 new math and science teachers. But the second one that played in their report was of equal status was to create a master teacher core of the kind that we're talking about. And actually, they mentioned Math for America as a model. But they pointed out that without that second recommendation, the teachers that you bring in will just leave. And unfortunately, in the interim, almost everybody that talks about this, because it's just so much easier, talks about that first recommendation, you know, bring in lots of new teachers. And they forget that the second recommendation is an essential part actually being successful in creating a teaching force that's knowledgeable and inspiring and creative and all the things that you want in teachers. And until we recognize that that second recommendation is as important, I personally think more important than the first because I think it subsumes the first. I think if you can make teaching more prestigious, people will come into it. Good people will come into it. But you've got to do that first. And until we decide that we can do that, we're, we're just not going to succeed in improving the teaching profession in this country. I'm going to let Patrick Honor have the last word with this elevator pitch for why you, if you have any interest in mathematical education, should join Math for America. If you want to be a good t- teacher, you're going to work a lot. You're going to have to work hard, and you're going to have to work hard on your own. And... In being a part of Math for America, it's, it requires effort, it requires commitment, but it will accelerate the payoff for that hard work because you'll be working with other people who are in the same situation, working as hard as you, trying to get better, and you're, you'll be uplifted because you'll also be around those people you know, who want to be better and who you know, want to find better ways to teach slope and derivatives and how to evaluate projects and you know they, they want to do all those things so those are things you want to do already as a someone who wants to be a good teacher so you know make the commitment to become a part of the organization so that you can be part of a community of people who want to do that 
You will never find me claiming that teachers are not an integral part of any education, but the way that they teach may just be changing. At least, that is the opinion of Keith Devlin. Keith Devlin, K-E-I-T-H-D-E-V-L-I-N. He is director of Stanford's H-Star Institute and the man who is using video games to change the world of mathematical education. I caught up with him at his office at Stanford University. Hey, so I'm gonna I'm talking to you today because of math and video games, yeah. which is, uh, I mean, I, I grew up with a poor example of a mathematical mm-hmm. video game. Yeah. I use Math Blaster. Oh yeah, the famous uh, Math Blaster. Yeah. Throughout my childhood, and so I, I was wondering why you originally, you know, decided to start looking at mathematics and video games. Oh, I was first intrigued when, uh, way back in England, when I had a pre-teen daughter and an early teen daughter. This was back in the early 1980s when personal computers were just beginning to come out. We bought a small personal computer for our home use and my two daughters immediately commandeered it. <laughs> and the first thing they did was get hold of some video games. They got one called Wizard's Lair. And the fact was I have two daughters and they were both scholastic and, you know, good students and things, very bright who immediately started spending hours playing these video games. So what was clear immediately was the power of video games to just engage people and keep them engaged for long periods of time. And as an educator, that's the key to education. You've got to engage your students and keep them interested. And that was always a struggle. All educators find that a struggle. It's very hard work. It has minimal degree of success. Video games just achieve that instantly with very minimal components. So it was obvious that they had something that we needed to tap into. And the obvious way of taking advantage of that was to embed mathematics in video games. I actually did try a few myself. I wrote a couple of simple games that that, that sort of had some mathematics embedded in the play. But the technology was nothing like sufficiently far advanced to make that happen very well. So I just put it to one side and did other things. It was only, oh, back in the early 2000 period. In fact, when we created our MediaX Institute here, that I and my co-collaborators who created MediaX decided uh, we wanted to do something within MediaX that was very definitely involved in new academic research, particularly in, in research involving education. Uh, my own interest was mathematics education, and also involved technology. And the idea of marrying video games, and we're in the middle of Silicon Valley, with Electronic Arts is just down the road, IBM's in the area, there were game companies all around us, new ones were being developed. Um, to marry video games with, with, with genuine, what we knew about good, good science, and, and, and in particular science and mathematics, STEM, STEM discipline education. So I started playing some games. I, I was an early World of Warcraft player. In principle, I'm still a player, but I never seem to have time <laughs> to do it. About that time, I got an opportunity to start working with a commercial video game studio in the Valley on a stealth program to develop video games that had genuine conceptual mathematical thinking in most of the mathematics games that are on the market, they're essentially drill and practice of basic skills. And they do that very well because to master a basic skill, all you need to do is repeat it many, many times. And if you can find a, a mechanism for, for, for doing that and for making it not only possible but unavoidable to do that, and video games can do that, then it would do that. So instantly video games provide you a simple, pain-free way of mastering any basic skill where all you need is repetition. We were looking for something deeper. We were looking for, for games where A, you would learn new mathematics, B, you would learn it at a deep conceptual level, and C, when you use it in the game, it would involve more than just applying some knowledge you have. You would have to think your way through a problem using mathematical thinking. That's a much more difficult challenge, and it's because it's a difficult challenge that it's interesting to look at. And so I was hooked, both as a video game player, 
and you know, I, I went all the way through the levels of World of Warcraft. Uh, I learned enough to design what we were doing but when I reached level 20. So why <laughs> did I go on to level 60 and then level 70 and onwards? Because I was hooked. That just affirms the fact that they are a great medium for helping people learn dis disciplines where you need to keep plugging away time and time again. Yeah, the, the hours that I uh, planted myself in front of a computer monitor. And that was before even any of the MMOs. This was yeah. just me yeah. and a game that had no interaction with anyone else. It was me and a bunch of virtual people. And I would get yelled at rather consistently by my parents to go to sleep. Yeah. yeah. And I wouldn't because I had to play the That's game. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the interesting thing that we... One of the things I learned on the project I did with this big video game company, which I'm not allowed to mention their name, by the way. Yeah. And we started out to, to build a, a sort of an MMO... And, and so that was meant to be a very complicated game. One of the things we learned was that much of the complexity that you have in an MMO is not necessary to learn mathematics well. I thought you needed to make it as real as possible so that the learning mathematics experience would be real. Turns out not to be the case. If the game is well designed with just a little bit of graphics that, that attract people, then you can load the game with mathematical representations, not overtly mathematics, they're just simple shapes and things. One of the tricks to doing a, a good video game is not to use symbols, but to use shapes and, and, and objects that seem natural in a video game world as themselves representations of mathematical objects. If you want to talk about five objects, you don't need the symbol five, you can actually have five objects on a screen. Now, it gets a bit more difficult if you've got 25 objects and things, but you could have two red objects and five blue objects, and that could represent 25. So once you start to think of it, because a video game is interactive and dynamic, the screen is constantly changing, it responds to you, you can actually dispense with mathematical symbols and develop representations of the mathematics that make sense in the context of a video game. And once you start thinking along those lines, you realise that what's involved in developing a video game that's fundamentally about mathematical thinking and not just drill and kill skills practice with symbolic mathematics. So we know Math Blasters out there, we know these other ones, and, and I'm just going to keep yeah. on dropping Math Blasters' names because that's the <laughs> only one that I know of. What are they doing wrong or what could they oh. be doing differently? Not, not, I mean, as you said, they're very good at, at drilling in skills. Yeah. But what could they be doing differently to be teaching more than just multiplication or addition? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's two things. First of all, they don't teach anything. They just do practice. Yes. So if they simply wanted to teach those things, what they would need to do is something like begin with natural representations of what addition and multiplication are in terms of things on the board. I mean, areas of things and, and, and multiples of things, uh, adding things together. And then transition by simultaneously having those objects themselves together with the numerals that denote them. And then look what happens when you combine a collection of three objects and a collection of four objects. You get seven objects. And at the same time, you've got this symbol three and this symbol four and then this symbol seven appears for the collection. And you, could, you can do the dual representation for a while. And then you can drop away the objects and just leave the symbols and introduce a plus sign and an equal sign. So you can transition from manipulating collections of objects in, a, in an additive way to doing that and simultaneously showing the symbolic representation to just having the symbolic representation, which is actually how people learn about addition. When we're kids, we, we have collections of physical objects, and then the teacher sort of eventually says, we can represent these symbolically. But that's a jump, because you have to go in your mind from the objects to the symbolic representation. In a video game, you can show the transition by having the two representations simultaneously in front of you. And so not only can we do it in video games, but it actually gets better. 
when we do it in a video game world. Um, you just have to begin with the concepts on the screen and the symbolic representations of those concepts and those operations as the end goal. Uh, it gets to be a much bigger challenge when you allow for bigger numbers, when you allow for multiplication, when you allow for other concepts. It's doable. At least we have yet to meet an instance that we either weren't able to figure out how to do it or where we didn't come away with a reasonably good idea of how to do it. So my hunch is for most of middle school mathematics, the process I'm describing is doable. But we might be looking at several years and a lot of smart people working on it to crack that nut. We're really talking about finding a way of representing mathematics in a video game that's at least in some senses as powerful as the familiar symbolic representations. Now, that symbolic representation of mathematics that we take for granted, the, the 10 digits, 0 through, uh, through 9, the, the rules for adding and multiplying, the, all these algorithms we have, they took centuries to develop. It began in the first six or seven centuries, advances in the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries, more advances in the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century. Many, many centuries of smart people took a lot of effort to develop what we now take for granted as a simple representation. The fact that it looks simple is, as is often the case, a consequence of the fact that it took a lot of people a lot of time to develop it. Simplicity is one of the hardest things to achieve of anything. And that interface to mathematical thinking that we take for granted, those symbols and those algorithms, is a result of smart people working for many centuries. We're essentially saying, we'll throw that away and we'll start again with video games as our medium, instead of parchment and paper and clay tablets as our medium. For, for thousands of years, mathematics was represented on flat, static surfaces. Clay tablets, parchment, paper, slates, blackboards, whiteboards. When we first started to look at video games as a medium for mathematics, we looked at it as a flat, static surface. We just put those symbols on the screen and we'll allow some motion behind the symbols. We now need to start doing it for real and saying, a dynamic interactive surface, especially one like an iPad where you move your finger and everything moves, that is so different from a piece of parchment or a blackboard that we shouldn't assume that we have to write symbols. We can do a lot just with, with, with the affordances that are intrinsic to that medium. So I think what we should be doing, and I and various other groups, my group and various other groups around the world are now doing this, we're looking at video games afresh and we're saying, We've got this representative medium. How can we represent mathematics in that medium? And all bets are off in terms of the ways we know. We start with the medium and the mathematical ideas and look for representations. And from my perspective, as a, as a person who has spent my life as a mathematician, love playing video games, and I'm interested in communication and learning, this is perhaps the most exciting time to live since the 13th century. Uh, which was the time when Western Europe got hold of Hindu-Arabic arithmetic and the modern world was created. Because we're about to create a new world uh, where actually almost all citizens will be able to have basic mathematical thinking skills because they'll pick them up by having fun in a video game. So with video games, one, one thing that I, I feel that uh, people really like about them, especially with something like an, an MMO like World of Warcraft, mm -hmm. is that... You, you start out not, not knowing anything about the game, and then you learn with it, and you keep yeah. on going with it, and things get added, and you keep on That's right. going. Yeah. World of Warcraft's been around for a long time yeah. now. I mean, and so I was wondering, how can you kind of make it so that something, a video game like that, uh, could exist for math education where you know it starts out with the young people? Can you, can you create one where 
where as a student grew, so did the challenges in the game for a student, so you could actually stay in the same environment from the beginning until uh, the you end? You could indeed. It's, um, the project I worked on was eventually abandoned for a variety of reasons, one being the projective cost was just prohibitive for a game company. Yeah. The World of Warcraft, the initial build was about $50 million. It was eight, four years to build, a team of 80 engineers, and the prices have come down a bit, but... If you look up something like World of Warcraft, okay, it's a complicated world with a lot of different quests and activities, but really it's not. There's basically just one world that's skinned in different ways. There's a dozen or so different quests and interactions that are dressed up in different language and mixed and matched. They basically had to write a number of code modules, and then they just play with them and mix them and match them and put different skins on them, and you build up the game and you create the, 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 this, this feeling that everything's different. When you try to do it with mathematics, you, you can build a little bit of the world where addition of fractions is really important. That's all it's going to do. If you want to do multiplication of fractions, you have to do the same again. You can't reuse one module in another module. That means you have to take all of the points in, in what in now in the Common Core curriculum, and there's hundreds of them, and for each one you have to build a bit of the world and some activities in that world. That's not like building World of Warcraft at $50 million. That's like building 200 copies of World of Warcraft, each at $50 million. You're talking billions of dollars very quickly because you can't reuse the same materials. Even if you're building apps, and we're building apps because they're cheaper, I use the analogy of a, of a mathematical app has been like a piano on which you can, on a, on a piano you can play a tune, on a mathematical app you can play some mathematics. That analogy breaks down when you realize that on a piano you can play any tune. You only need one piano, you can play any tune. You build an app that allows you to add fractions and learn about adding fractions. That's all it does. We're not building an instrument. We're building an orchestra, and it's a big orchestra. So even at the level of apps, and to build a good, a good mathematical app, you can easily spend a half a million dollars uh, on design and building and doing it right for a whole variety of reasons. But you need to build two, three hundred of those. So even at the level of apps, covering the curriculum is going to be expensive. On the other hand, you can do them one at a time. So the, the MMO model I don't think is going to happen unless an organization like NASA finds that it no longer has a space mission and has all these people to employ. The, the, the organization I think... That oh, you mean this... kind of exactly what NASA has found themselves in right now. Exactly. <laughs> I, I would suggest humbly that NASA should be put to work building a full-blown simulator for all of middle school mathematics. That would be a great use of taxpayers' money and you only need to build it once and then you can give it away to the world and the world can use it forever after. The mathematics is not going to change. It's not going to go out of date. And so that simulator could be used forevermore. And it's actually would cost a lot less than, than, than the space program does, than the shuttle program or the Apollo program. That's what I've sometimes called in, in, in articles and op-eds the Apollo program for mathematics. Build a full-blown simulator for middle school mathematics. You're probably talking billions of dollars, but maybe only three or four billion. The space program costs an awful lot more than that. So it's actually cheap at the national level, and NASA is the organisation to do it, I think, because it would involve a lot of outsourcing and expertise. As an individual game producer, we're just working on, let's try and get one or two apps out each year and, and maybe increase that, that range. And then, by the time we brought out our seventh or eighth app, people will see what it takes to build one, and then the rest of the world will start building them. I don't think it will take forever. I think it will take a group like ourselves or another group maybe two or three years to build a bunch of these things. Then people say, oh, I get it. This is how you do it. This is how it works. And then the world will come in, and within a year, you've got your orchestra. I actually think it's going to happen fairly quickly, just with a couple of groups maybe building half a, half a dozen of these things, and then everyone figuring out how to do it themselves.
we actually don't see ourselves as building video games forever. We see ourselves as building video games for two or three years and then just becoming a platform to help other people build them and, and, and produce them. And, and then that problem solved. We're there. So I actually think this is going to happen. It'll happen with the app process. It's not quite as rich as building a world because you can go through the world. You can, you can go all the way through the high school, college level in that same world. It's a much richer environment. And so a World of Warcraft environment will be a much better learning environment than a bunch of apps. But the, the World of Warcraft approach is going to take something like a, a reassigned NASA to do it and three or four billion dollars of government money. Whereas, you know, $500,000 a pop, it won't take that long to bring out enough video games to outsource it to the world. So I think the app, the app version is going to come quickly. The other version, desirable as it is, might take longer and might never happen. I just hope I'm around long enough to be able to play these games that I'm envisaging. Um, <laughs> and I have every intention of doing that. Because one thing video games do is they keep you young. I'm very proud of the fact that I have what they call a real age of 47. <laughs> you can compute what your real age in terms of a whole bunch of, 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 of psychological and physiological factors. And I'm a little bit older than 47, but I'll settle for what they call a real age of 47. That gives me a long time to go. And you know what? I really hope that I'm around to play those video games too. They kind of sound right up my alley. I'm Edmund Harris, proud supporter of Relatively Prime. We want to thank the guests, Dan Mayer, who you can read at blog.mrmayer.com, John Ewing of Math for America, along with his fellows, Patrick Honor and Meredith Klein, and Keith Devlin, who is chronicling his new massively open online course, Introduction to Mathematical Thinking, at mooctalk.org, and the musician Calvin Cardioid, without all of whom this would not have been possible. If you want to find out more about the guests or the music, or if you want to discuss the show, please join us over at relprime.com. And while you're on the internet, why not head over to iTunes and leave a review of the show? It really does help other people find it. If you have any feedback, just email samuel at acmescience.com. That's his personal email address. Relatively Prime is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, and any remixes are greatly looked forward to. Thank you for listening, and we hope you come back for the next episode. <laughs>